Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. For a century-old cocktail, many aspects of the bamboo make it a decidedly modern and on-trend drink in today's landscape. The bamboo eschews a base spirit in favor of industry darling sherry, which also allows it to arrive with a lower alcohol content and, dare I say it, sessionable. To walk us through the stirred blend of Spanish wine, vermouth and bitters, we're joined today by Alex Day, one of the partners of Death & Co. For Alex, perfecting the bamboo involved a study in the character and complexity of its ingredients, as well as a lot of time thinking about texture which proves to be a tricky topic when mixing a cocktail with no distilled spirit. For modern day mixology in general, the recipe published in the first Death & Co cocktail book, which Alex co-authored, has had a big impact on the version many bars serve today. Specifically, via the inclusion of sweeter Blanc Vermouth. Personally, one of the things I find most fascinating about the bamboo is that it challenges the notion that low ABV drinks should arrive loaded with citrus and sugar, or that they need be highballs. The bamboo is neither of those things. All things told, this is a wonderful, if not commonly ordered cocktail. But perhaps that might change for you today, listener, after hearing Alex's take. Alex Day, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Cocktail College. Thank you so much for having me, Tim. Excited to be here. Excited to have you on the show and very excited to talk about today's drink because I think this is one that maybe not everyone will be familiar with. Certainly a classic, but also definitely different to anything we've covered so far in the show. So that's exciting. Today we're talking about the bamboo. So tell me, Alex, what is a bamboo and what makes it kind of unique or notable? Ooh, I mean, the bamboo is just perfect. You know, mm-hmm. it, is, it is this like holy marriage of sherry rounded out by vermouth, a little bit of bitters. And, you know, it has a, a long storied history, but really, really this sort of like fetish moment with bartenders in the last decade of of unpacking it and, and really just exploring all of its, not only its ingredients, but how those ingredients marry together. So what I love most about it is that it it drinks like a much higher proof cocktail than it actually is. And, mm-hmm. you know, as I've gotten older and, you know, kind of changed my drinking habits, having, having a cocktail that, uh, you know, punches pretty softly, um, but also has an incredible amount of complexity doesn't have citrus, uh, which is wonderful sometimes, but really, really is consumed much like a Manhattan or martini. To me, it's just a really, really great opportunity to um, to to sit with the drink um, and, and really kind of explore its characteristics. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I, I guess some folks listening might be might be might be hearing that summation there and saying, okay, so this is a cocktail without a base spirit. 
Yep, no no base fare to be found. Really just wines and wines have been been manipulated. So um, it is, you know, classically speaking, from the oldest recipes that we can find, you're talking um, a large amount of Fino sherry and dry vermouth, um, orange bitters and Angostura bitters, uh, and really just just a bracingly dry fino sherry at that mm-hmm. too so um it is it is bone dry it strips your tongue away a little bit um but it's very kind of clean in its flavor so no spirits whatsoever but because of the complexity of those ingredients the vermouth the sherry the bitters it has um it has the personality much like a a much more um you know pungent cocktail like mm-hmm. a martini for example fantastic and before we do dive into those ingredients, and one in particular that I'm really excited to explore, which would be sherry, um, do you want to give us any kind of historical co- context for this drink? And I think that also might relate to sherry, because sherry is definitely very popular among a certain set of drinkers these days, not only in, in cocktails, but notably in cocktails, right, but in wine as well. But it's still kind of, it's still kind of this, 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 I don't know, um, it, it's geeky to like sherry, right? But... <laughs> historically has it's steeped in history so um yeah can you give us some context for the drink before we get going yeah for sure i mean you know sherry you may be like in the cool kids club now by loving Mm -hmm. sherry Mm -hmm. um and and you know think you've discovered some secret but there's a long history of sherry being incredibly popular on a global level but really specifically with with cocktails and yeah i'm not a historian um i i love cocktail history and booze history but you know in regurgitating really everything that Dave Wonderson said, you know, we, we know that there's a lot of record of the mid 1800s Sherry just being like immensely popular, you know, mm-hmm. the famous Edgar Allan Poe poem from like the 1850s. And then, you know, just like a larger globalized market now happening where casts of Sherry are just going all over the planet. And, you know, it's no mistake that like Jerry Thomas called the Sherry Cobbler without question the, the most popular cocktail in America. And, wow. and so you're talking like the 18, late 1800s with just like Sherry everywhere, uh, Sherry Cobblers at, at every notable bar. And so I guess it's not much of a surprise then that this ingredient that was being consumed a lot, this, this wine from the south of Spain, which I know we'll talk about in more detail soon, started being played with in some different ways. And, you know, I, I know there's like a couple of divergent histories here. And and one says that uh, this German-born bartender um, bartended in San Francisco around the time of Jerry Thomas, and but then was recruited to come over to Japan, to Yokohama, and, uh, you know, lord over this wonderful bar there and that's where he created the bamboo mm-hmm. um but other people say well he probably invented it in san francisco before but my personal feelings about cocktail history like i don't care yeah <laughs> like it was invented around then and everyone was drinking so it's all make-believe any who um but we know it's really old right and that's kind of the important part of it and, and what i love about this is we're talking about a time in history when you know so many iconic cocktails um that are still like heralded today were formed and mm-hmm. created. And really I think of those less as the actual cocktails. Yes. The Manhattan, the martini, the Brooklyn, these variations of them, but really what they are is uh, humans and bartenders finding balance, you know, like finding these harmonies that make sense and feel really good. And that we kind of all agree upon that we, we like a lot. And those are the, the templates by which, you know, I, I, you know, I've spent a lot of time writing about like cocktail codex is those harmonies, you know, each one yeah. of those six harmonies is, is then expressed in a lot of different ways. And that this kind of weird idea of, of sherry and vermouth 
came together during that time too, and essentially faded into nothingness until recently is, is where like the parts of history that I really like are, um, I, I don't know, the, the parts of history that really jump out at me as being fascinating because they're like kind of underdog stories. Mm-hmm. And just listening to you there, that really, to my mind, kind of sums up what we try and do when we make cocktails or what what professionals, amazing professionals such as yourself are trying to do, right, in terms of we're taking two historical ingredients here at a time where they were ubiquitous and people are saying, okay, how do we mix them together so that they work, though? And what are maybe, so, like, what's the technique? And also maybe what are some some supplementary ingredients that, are, that we can add to bring balance and to bring these two incredible ingredients together in a way that they do work? And, yeah, to my mind, that's that's basically making any cocktail, right? So so <laughs> wonderful that, that, that the bamboo offers us that example. I think it does, and I think it, it really, to your point, is a, is a larger conversation. It's about what... Um, you know, the modern palette is, uh, as well as a recognition of what ingredients are now. And I think it's incredibly valuable to look back at history and be almost a literalist about it, uh, of look at a recipe and like, okay, let's make that, let's understand what the intention was behind this. Then that requires, I, rather, there are so many layers that you can go down and peel off and be like, well, what sherry actually like sherry we know now today right. then was vermouth like that now, you know, but I, I'm, I'm sure you guys talked about it or has come up, but if it hasn't like limes when the daiquiri was created, we're probably not like limes now. Right. right? So that's fascinating. Right. Mm -hmm. So what is the intention of this balance and trying to understand it? And I think that's where traditionalism intersects with evolution and in taking these ideas and understanding the intent, as I just said, perfecting to one's, own aesthetic what they think that idealized version is and then what does the evolution of that look like and that is some of the that is to me what modern bartending is it's Mm -hmm. like pushing the volume of what some of these forms look like and and within the context of the bamboo like it's it's rife with opportunity even though it presents itself as so simple Mm -hmm. sherry which we'll again we'll talk about in a few minutes but like the the spectrum that is sherry as a as a category is vast. It's the driest wine you've ever had to the sweetest wine. Okay, incredible opportunities. Vermouths. <laughs> we we it was like only a few years ago when we had a handful of vermouths accessible to us, and now we have tons of traditional styles and contemporary in new directions. So, really, you know, within the written recipe of a bamboo is almost limitless opportunities, and and that in and of itself is like to me another example of why cocktails and bartending is so magical Mm -hmm. um, and so much different than other culinary arts. And you mentioned a word before that comes up often and that I often like to sort of gravitate towards and that's intent. And Mm -hmm. that comes up so often in Cocktail College, what we're trying to do here. So let's start by talking about the bamboo, whether you're making one yourself or whether someone hands one to you, you've ordered it. What are you looking for from that perfectly balanced version and iteration of that drink i mean first and foremost much like any cocktail i'm looking for harmony of ingredients you know that they interact well together that they have thought behind their assemblage which is to say in this case a bamboo the personality of the sherry and the personality of the vermouth 
and then what layers of complexity or uh, dynamics that the bidders bring into the equation. So those in and of themselves, and that can be many different things. That can be, let's say it was, you know, a summer day, late afternoon. If somebody served me a bamboo made with a very dry style of sherry and dry vermouth and like orange bitters and a lemon twist, that sounds perfect to me. Conversely, this time of year, it's, it's winter now, right? It's a little chilly. It's currently dark outside. <laughs> I would love a, you know, a Montiato sherry, which has a little bit of richness, nuttiness to it, and perhaps um, a dry vermouth and maybe a, a blanc vermouth and, and a dash of orange bitter. So you get a little bit more depth, right? So situation, context, or what is it, set and setting, right uh, of of anything has a lot to do with what i think makes the perfect version of any any particular drink but really in the context of bamboo there's like finding that dialing it in finding that perfect version of it in that moment um is uh, a pretty complex equation because it requires a lot of knowledge of the ingredients mm-hmm. and a lot of depth um a depth of awareness of how to interact with one another mm-hmm. and we're talking about two well three ingredients essentially the, the remarkably complex flavors all coming together, right? Like this, this you, you talk about it like a kind of almost a scale of opportunity, but also this scale of complexity within each one. So mm. let's break those down one by one, obviously starting with sherry. And I think one of the things that often gets said these days or when people try and figure it, when, when people come on to the, the, the side of sherry and when people fall in love with sherry, Everyone has this kind of moment where they're like, well, why isn't this more popular? Because it is so phenomenal. And I think one thing that's often cited is that it's it's more difficult to understand than, say, wine. So let's start with some mm-hmm. quick fire questions just about sherry. Um, and then and then we'll we'll look more closer at different styles. So sherry, we're talking about fortified wine. What else is sherry? How can we briefly sum it up so that we can we can win over these people that are apparently or perhaps confused? Um, not listening to this show, because I'm sure a lot of the people listening to the show will already love it. But if they don't, how do you win them over? Sure, yeah. No, this is definitely a captive audience for this show. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, <laughs> you know, Sherry has a bad reputation or, or you know, it has been victim to some bad um, uh, marketing. And I think you know, Sherry's popularity historically died out um, for a number of reasons, but really only survived through the lens of, like, sweet sherries, cream sherries. Mm-hmm. It's like understanding of something post-meal or, you know, stereotypically that your granny would have a little glass of a thimbleful every, every night, right? And that really just represents one end of, of sherry. Mm-hmm. So kind of backing up from there, sherry in and of itself is a style of wine that's made in a very specific region of southern Spain um, in a number of different ways. Um, what's really interesting about sherry is that it is a byproduct of the geology and, and biology of this one place, one place on the planet where this can be made. And, and that kind of language is thrown around a lot um, with, with spirits, with wine, with beer, and rightfully so, you know, the mm-hmm. sense of terroir is a real thing. And, and, and I think Sherry represents a more kind of sophisticated understanding of terroir where if you study wine, it's sort of the reflection of the land. Um, but if you go deeper than that, it is a reflection of the culture and traditions of a place and really here with Sherry, it is those things. And then an added thing uh, called floor, which is a yeast that exists only in this area that will form on as a layer on a finished wine 
and really protect it from oxidizing. So this wine will sit in barrels. Mm -hmm. This floor will sit on top of it. And that floor will not only protect the wine, but it'll also consume the sugars in the wine. So it will become really, 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 really dry. Um, that floor will sometimes die out, often dies out, and then it will then start interacting with the oxygen in the barrel. And that then starts to get nuttiness, and that becomes something called a Montiato sherry, whereas the first dry one is called Pinot sherry. Mm -hmm. But what if you uh, didn't, what if the floor just didn't interact with that wine at all? And you threw the wine in barrels and it would age just in the presence of oxygen, not under the floor. Then you've got something like Oloroso sherry, which starts getting nuttier, more dense, more intense, um, and almost perceptively sweeter, even though it can be often very dry. And those are all made from the same type of grape. Mm -hmm. But what if you had a different grape there uh, called Pedro Jimenez, which is really dense and, and rich, and is and when you press it and make a wine out of it and fortify it with a little um, – sorry, one second. So uh, let's say you have a, a, a lesser-known grape that's grown in the region um, – where most sherry is made from Palomino. You've got another one called Peter Jimenez, and it is really rich, uh, full of sugar. You ferment it, add a little fortification um, to stop the, the fermentation more, and you have essentially the sweetest wine you've ever had. It is so, so dense and so sweet. Um, we affectionately call it nature's finest simple syrup for, for quite some time and would use it judiciously for that. So all to say, you know, as quickly as one could talk about an incredibly complex um, and 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 fascinating category of wine, sherry is is that whole spectrum from driest of dry to the sweetest of sweet. But generally speaking, aside from the characteristics that come with the grape, which is generally Palomino's pretty boring wine on its own. Yeah. Um, but the influence of the floor, the aging. Uh, you also have the influence of the the geographic region. So you have a lot of the wine that's made just off the coast. You know, I think it's like 30 kilometers inland, if I remember correctly. I was drinking a lot of sherry when I was there. <laughs> or if you are aging it by the ocean and getting all the salinity in um, and, and creating a style called Monsignia and, and riffs off that. So you have this like layers based upon where it is all aged it is really complexing and cr can create for a bartender opportunities and so these things can be tools if we want to create a more savory characteristic to our bamboo for example perhaps we'll pull for a manzanilla sherry mm -hmm. um, so that it can shine through or maybe we want something a little richer and we go towards you know something made by loose style that's a little bit inland so just an incredible amount of different different um variety there that's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for for summing that up in in a very concise way, but also giving us all of the information that we need right there. Um, when it does come to the bamboo, are we w which style would you say is kind of most generally reached towards by bartenders? Um, and and where do you tend towards yourself? I know you've you've already mentioned that you know like this is a drink that can take on many different personalities, but when you're making it yourself and sort of traditionally, which of these styles of sherry are people reaching for? I almost always reach for a Montiato sherry first. Mm -hmm. I think that is the, the perfect intro sherry for most people, um, as well as sits very nicely in in the middle of the spectrum. Um, mm -hmm. So here's what I mean by that. You know, as an intro, Amontillado smells relatively rich and nutty and complex on the nose, but it's often quite dry on the palate. So that dryness to me as a bartender 
allows versatility. That means that I then can introduce body by way of sweetness or alcohol content to my choosing. So it gives me more control over the situation. Um, it's also just like right off the bat, delicious. You know, <laughs> like if you've ever had, you know, a, a, a really dry Fino Sherry for the first time, no, almost no one likes it. You right. Know, like unless they're <laughs> Spanish, you know, like it's very it's difficult. Like, whoa, like, what am I drinking here? This is insane. You like this is often the question. Whereas, you know, people enjoy the sweeter end of the spectrum, more the Oloroso, the Pedro Jimenez, or Moscatel for that matter, really sweets up, but in the context of more dessert, right? And yeah. so less of just like a consumable thing. So right there in the middle, Amontillado, I think, really presents a great opportunity. And then for me, is by, by extension of that idea, is usually my first stop in working in a cocktail because it allows that versatility too. So, and, and honestly, there are just so many out there that aren't that expensive. And I would say my number one go-to um, for cocktail making would be Lustau's Los Arcos Amontillado. It's just, you know, really available almost everywhere on the planet, reliably good, very consistent year over year, um, and, and just kind of like a benchmark in my mind. Fantastic. Wonderful. Enjoy the added tip there of a bottle to go for too, because I think that, yeah, obviously sherry kind of being, like you said, you know, like the, the, the cool kids drink, but maybe, yeah, not known by the masses. I think it's great to always have like one bottle to, to kind of kick things off with and to, to really dive into the category with. And also when it comes to a cocktail like this, right? Like you need to with, with, with a couple of variables in there, you need to choose one, right, and build it around that. Because like you said at the beginning, there's these, there's these different variations that you can go with or maybe different personalities the drink can take on. So knowing that we have that Amontillado now to, as our kind of baseline, where are we moving next when it comes to vermouth? How does that influence your choice of vermouth? And again, what are you typically reaching for when, when you make this drink? You know, I couldn't agree more with you that you got to you got to pick a lane. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and that doesn't mean that the uh, collaborating ingredients aren't of a high quality alongside the, the, the core focus, which in this case would be the sherry. Really, I would I would argue is the point of bamboo is sort of celebration and respect of really well made sherry. So then in considering the remove, you've, you've got a lot of different things that you can do. Right. You can either. Um, match the intensity of the sherry um, and try to build a really complex sort of like, I, I tend to think of cocktail flavor in like sound waves mm -hmm. and it's like, it's sort of like jostling. I just, I like see these spikes and troughs. If it's a really intense vermouth and a really like really personality driven or intense sherry. But I also feel like there's an elegance to kind of stepping them back too and, and picking that lane and pulling back a little bit. So in the case of the bamboo, I tend to start veering when we're talking about vermouth rather, I tend to start veering away from tradition. And this was something that I I watched some of my fellow bartenders at Death & Co. in the earlier days do, um, specifically a guy named Thomas Waugh, where where he, you know, he put in a little teaspoon of uh, cane syrup to his bamboo just to give it some more body. And, and I think that soaked a lot of conversations amongst I don't know who was the first to do it, but start playing around with maybe, maybe let's pull off on the dry vermouth and add some Blanc vermouth or Bianco vermouth. And mm -hmm. that adds a bit more sweetness, but also a different flavor personality, right? Um, so that started to be a really interesting combination. And I, you know, I think there are many different options out there that are really interesting and make a delicious cocktail, but both the 
Blanc and the Dry by Dolan, um, you know, is I, I just find them to be perfectly matched for an Amontillado sherry. They 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 provide just a little bit of sweetness, a lot of kind of similar uh, aromatics and alpine. Uh, flavors and aromas, um, but really will sit back, take a back seat to the sherry's personality um, and not overwhelm. Mm-hmm. And I think that is when, when I think about flavors or texture, actually, we're talking about texture here, right? When we are using these lower ABV ingredients, two together, right? It's it's the body that you worry about losing when you're talking about a stirred drink. Now, obviously, there are there are methods to stirring too that we'll get into to make sure that we don't over dilute or or lose too much body, right? But because we don't have that alcohol there, we're, we're losing that body. So it's interesting to see that you reach for maybe a, a, a certain amount of sweetness to kind of make up for that, but still achieve balance. Right, which is what people don't really think about when they think of alcohol content is, yes, you know, a high proof spirit brings alcohol, but also brings body, Mm -hmm. you know, and that body is really difficult to match without, without the alcohol. And there are tricks to do it Um, in the case of, say, uh, non-alcoholic drinks that have citrus. Often it's sugar, you know, like those are often very high, high sugar content cocktails in, in a cert format where we're pulling back on the alcohol content, you have to find it somewhere. And, you know, the, the richness of the Amontillado brings the perception of sweetness, even if it is actually quite dry. Mm -hmm. Um, but that, that Blanc Vermouth also doubles down on that impression and really can create, create that sense of body and complexity because without that body, you may have a delicious cocktail but it's one that your brain either consciously or unconsciously starts consuming like water almost. You know, yeah. it's how I feel about um, this incredible explosion in non-alcoholic brewing that's happening right now. And there's some really great ones and I always have some downstairs, but boy, do I consume one of those much quicker than I do, say, a, a standard beer. Yeah. Um, and and that has a lot to do with that, that body and that perception of alcohol. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's a cool thing too about a drink like this is, as, as somebody who's worked in cocktails for for quite some time, it's pretty easy to get jaded um, or to become a little indifferent or to lose some of the passion for drinks. And, you know, I was waxing poetic about it a little bit earlier, but, you know, when we talked about me coming on and, and chatting with you, my first instinct was like, oh, they haven't done the Negroni. I guess I'll do that because I mm-hmm. do love a Negroni. I absolutely <laughs> love a Negroni. And I feel like a walking bartender cliche, but screw it. You know, it's delicious. But it's it doesn't necessarily represent like as to me anyway, from my perspective, as interesting of a conversation and and hopefully like invites people not just to try bamboo, yeah. but to explore the world of bamboos, you know, from like there is a precursor to the bamboo called an Adonis cocktail, which is sherry and sweet vermouth. Oh, mm-hmm. that's probably gonna be delicious too. So, you know, there's there's a lot of things to kinda to 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 play around with in the history books as well as the contemporary camp. Mm-hmm. And for a drinker, just in terms of personal preferences, for someone like myself, who I definitely gravitate towards stirred spirit forward drinks. So if I am looking to, you know, go for something lighter in alcohol or, you know, take it slower, take it steadier, that typically means I'm either going for something with citrus, which will often therefore have sugar, as you mentioned, or I'm going for a highball, which again can be Mm. delicious. But what if I'm in the mood for that stirred served up um 
but I don't want it as boozy. And, and here's where the bamboo comes in. And also just complexity. That's something, again, I'm always looking for. Like, not with every single drink, but that's something I really do prize when I find it in a cocktail. So very interesting to find that, again, the bamboo hits all of those different criteria. And I would I would also um, suggest exploring what the, the bamboo can represent as a jumping off point. You know, um, what I love about it is it, it resets one's perception of what you have to do in this particular formula, which is to say at its base or pr the precursor to this is two part of spirit to one part vermouth. If we're being really simple about a martini Manhattan sort of classic combination, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. We just, we just blew that up a little bit and we form reformulated it, found balance, but you, then you can start creeping spirit back in just a little bit and think about it as a modifier Interesting. and you're not increasing the the proof necessarily uh, to a high degree but you are increasing complexity and this was a big revelation to me um gosh i think it was when we had a, a bar called the walker Inn in in los angeles Devin tarby and i were working on a menu that was an homage to alice waters the, the you know famous chef from berkeley california who is the, the mother of American modern cuisine for in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, part of that very nerdy menu was uh, an exploration of like, you know, how can we use every part of an ingredient? And in California, we have Meyer lemons and in uh, winter that are just beautiful. We're like, we need to use this whole thing. And we wanted to be low ABV because it was kind of at the beginning of the menu. And um, I have been a fan of bamboos for quite a while. So I was like, okay, let's just throw Meyer lemon zest into that, into a bamboo, a batch of bamboo and throw it in the chamber vacuum machine or, or an ISI or whatever infusion that, that you want to yeah. use. And I was like, oh, that's cool. That's cool. But oh, what if we just put like a teaspoon of Pisco in there and Ooh. suddenly it just blooms the whole, the flavors just bloom out of it. And so, you know, there's a lot of versions of that um, out there to play with. And I think with the bamboo is a really good starting place to, to explore that those kind of lower ABV, but still stirred, very complex, sophisticated and elegant cocktails mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, you know, take a, a dry version with uh, Fino Sherry and dry vermouth. Uh, Pisco would be a great opportunity An unaged uh, brandy like pear brandy, which is, you know, a favorite of mine Fantastic. Um, as, as is very well documented in <laughs> plenty of places. Um, uh, any, any grappas, you know, like just a teeny, teeny bit in there. Singani would be amazing there. Mm. Or let's say the bamboo we were talking about earlier, which is, you know, blocked from the dry vermouth and amontillado, a little bit of Calvados or mm. Asian oh, apple brandy, maybe a teaspoon of like scotch could be really interesting. You know, amontillado sherry and scotch, like especially like Highland Park, you know, sounds great. I mean, they're already, they already work together so often, right? Scotch and Sherry already have this very intimate relationship. Oh, so, you know, it stands to reason that um, bringing a bit of that, but also just as a, as, a, as a little seasoning, like you say, like is, is not the dominant part. I think that's wonderful. That's a great idea. Um, you've given us a, a number of great tips there. I wonder just before any more of those last ingredient would be uh, bitters. And to, to, to rewind just a little bit to how does that, come into your mind when you're talking about basically flavor balance of flavor and also uh, texture and texture mm. yeah so i tend to think about bitters uh, especially within the format of a stirred cocktail um as being either one or two or maybe both uh 
contributions. One is connecting of ingredients, sort of the glue that binds the two together. And the classic example of this is in Manhattan. You know, make a traditional one, two ounces rye or bourbon if you prefer, an ounce of sweet vermouth. Taste it, add a dash of bitters, taste it again. It doesn't taste like Angus or bitters, but suddenly the sum is much greater than the parts. They come together, it helps combine things. and then, and then the second version is adding flavor or seasoning, if you will. You know, it's sort of the salt and pepper of the, well, I would argue the salt is the first version. Uh, if used kind of correctly, it combine, helps people, things come together and heightens flavor. Whereas the second is more like uh, adding pepper or it's adding actual flavor, adding some complexity to, to the cocktail. Not a perfect analogy, but easy yeah. enough to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, ultimately, I think that bitters can do both of those things for a drink like a bamboo. I tend to only use orange bitters in my bamboos. Um, traditionally, it was with orange and Angostura, as I understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, the Angostura becomes a little distracting. Um, right. It's, you know, it, it does add some texture um, from a perceived level because of the spices, as well as from you know, what bitters are made out of. There, there's a lot of high viscosity in there um, mm-hmm. and that does change the texture. But for me, I like the clarity of the orange that just brings out some of the more citrusy elements of the fortified wine, um, of the sherry kind of interacting with that. Yeah. Some of the, like the cook, cook citrus elements of it. So those, that's kind of where I tend to go. But I would suggest to people if, if they want to explore bitters as most people who are into cocktails tend to have some sort of like, phase by which they mr potato had bitters all over the place just to see what happens yeah. and i <laughs> totally encourage it um but i would tend to err more towards the, the citrus or lighter end of the bitter spectrum so uh things that come to mind i have a friend in la from miracle mile excuse me miracle mile bitters that makes a really beautiful yuzu bitters mm-hmm. um once a year and like that like that's easy that, that that like checks out right so you know kind of that camp or kind of lighter more ephemeral versus the denser more um angostura style ones like bitter truth aromatic right. bitters that whole line um which are lovely but they're just that they get there there's a lot of like spice complexity that, that my instincts tell me are would generally be pretty distracting in the yeah. context of a bamboo and like you said you know this is a drink where we're already talking about we're we're being given complexity from a base wine oak aging maturation over time oxidation yeast right then on top mm-hmm. of that a base wine for vermouth wormwood all the botanicals that go into vermouth so we're not lacking complexity in any any area right so like where whereby yeah. you can maybe just highlight with those with the citrus nature of orange or maybe another if, if people want to explore that but yeah that makes a lot of sense to me in terms of just bringing everything together without distracting yeah, and I mean, as you're saying that now, I'm worried about the the carbon footprint of my bamboos. That sounds like quite a bit, <laughs> uh, but it's also I think yeah, now the sum there is the often reused line for me is like the Coco Chanel method for cocktails. Like, take one thing off, you know, like look in the mirror, you feel good. Take take one thing off, and that almost always produces a more elegant and focused cocktail. Fantastic. So. Before we get into stirring, and I also want to talk about ice, can you therefore give us your preferred recipe where it comes to if you were in front of your bar right now, if you're behind the bar back right now even, um, how would you, what what would be your preferred ratios and ingredients therefore? Right. 
Um, I tend to do one and a half ounces of uh, Amontillado sherry, uh, three quarter ounce of both Blanc and dry vermouth. Um, generally speaking, um, Dolan, uh, one dash of orange bitters, stirred, served straight up in a chilled cocktail glass with a lemon twist. Now, I know I mentioned Lustau Amontillado, but if you can find yourself some some other stuff that's worthy of exploration, you are making this delicious drink. So um, other recommended uh, bottles of Amontillado Sherry, Valdespino is largely available, a little pricey, but so delicious. And Equipo Navasos, who um, they just make just some incredible weird stuff, uh, both delicious. And I'm not sure if they're being imported anymore, but there's one uh, by a guy who started importing in Southern California called um, Alexander Jewels. And they had just some truly special uh, sherries there for a while. So you can you can go low price and still be great in the loose style camp um, or Hidalgo. Um, or you can get really esoteric and you can nerd out with your favorite wine store clerk and, and find some really complex amontillados to play with. Fantastic. Love it. Um, so as we mentioned before, this is a, a stirred cocktail using relatively low ABV ingredients overall. So tell me about your approach to stirring and, and essentially all the things we can do to ensure that we're not overly diluting and also so losing that body that we've spoken about. Yeah, it's, it's a tricky one, right? Because on paper, you've got things that are lower in alcohol that um, are, are pretty easy. If you stir in the traditional method that you would make a martini or Manhattan, it's pretty easy to make that overly diluted. So without being chilled enough, um, this drink does not need to get bone chillingly cold. In fact, it, it will be very hard to do so. And I don't think it's been benefited from it. You know, like it, it dumps down the aromatics, the flavor. So this is one of those cocktails that I think it can, doesn't need to go as cold as a, a mar- many of us fetishize about like how cold can we get a martini? Yeah. You know, like <laughs> it's not, it's not that drink. Um, and it's, it's not for the better for it. So um, that said, there are a couple of things that work in our favor by simple by simply handling our ingredients correctly, sherry, uh, block vermouth, dry vermouth are all pretty fragile. You need to keep them in the fridge. Um, if you have a wine pump, you know, take out the oxygen as much as you can. So they come out if you're making the cocktail. They they should be coming out pretty much chilled, which mm. actually helps quite a bit in, in the process. Second to that is um, using a chilled mixing glass. Um, keep it in the freezer or put it in a freezer about 30 minutes before you're making the cocktail. That will really, really help. And then, you know, build your, build your drink and, and stir as usual um, while tasting, you know, you want just a little bit of, I guess let's explain the trajectory when it's just the ingredients just combined together. They'll be pretty wound up is how I conceptualize it in my head where everything feels very tight. Yeah. And then they start loosening with the presence of water as you stir. In a martini or Manhattan, that loosening is can be pretty graceful. That can it can take a little bit of time, um, especially with a chilled glass and you know large cubes of ice. Um, but if you are, uh, you know, sorry, with a bamboo, your threshold is a little, your window is a little narrower. So I tend to taste pretty frequently throughout. Um, but it's almost like a two thirds stir if you if you want to like blanket blanket it with uh, an assumption. That said, the ice is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I tend to use, you know, at home anyway, what are the equivalent of cold draft cubes, um, which are, you know, one inch by one inch cubes um, in a mixing glass. 
I don't crack them in half um, as I may like a martini to try and get like even more like that cold internal ice that doesn't have water on it. I just do the whole ones, taste it, allows a little bit more control. Um, but for anyone who, you know, hasn't worked in the bar or hasn't had a lot of advanced ice training, just use more ice than you think you should, you know, fill the mixing glass all the way to the top. Um, don't let, if there, if your ice is bobbing in the cocktail, that's a red flag. So just make sure to use enough ice taste. And when you feel it unwind just a little bit, you're probably gold. Wonderful. That sounds like a foolproof solution right there for me. Well, Alex, thank you so much for that. Um, Now's the time to dive into our final questions. How do you feel about that? Let's do it. Fantastic. Question number one. What style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on one of your back bars? Most real estate. Uh, American whiskey. Even though I would like to say brandies. Right. Um, and I've been trying to get people to buy more brandies and they're listening to me on our back bars. But uh, yes, <laughs> I would say American whiskey still continues and has historically maintained the largest presence. Mm-hmm. Question number two, which ingredient or tool is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? A jigger. Even though a lot of bartenders pretend or think they're using a jigger accurately, I feel like there could be a lot more diligence on accuracy because it is, when you get really good at it really fast, it is the difference between making a good cocktail and a great cocktail. Wonderful. Question number three, what's the most important piece of advice you've received in this industry? Ooh. Ooh, that's a tough one. Uh, I would say uh, think for yourself. Um, there's so much dogma out there. Um, we are as an industry, both benefited and I think handcuffed by the fact that largely we're taught Socratically, we're taught by mentors, uh, which is really, really great. Um, but at the same time, we are, um, we can sometimes not question why we're taught certain ways. Um, and, uh, I had the supreme benefit of working for a few people in the early part of my career that instilled in me um, why, why, asking the question why and, and finding a conclusion that you actually believe in. Question number four. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, which one would it be? And this can be past can't. or present, just in case. Oh, past or present. All right. Um, well, I mean, I'm obliged to say Death & Co. New York, in LA, and Denver. Um, <laughs> and while I, I do believe that... Um, and Death & Co. New York specifically because it's so important in my career. Um, I would say the original Milk & Honey on the Lower East Side, um, uh, both as someone who was able to work there for a little bit, as well as uh, the place that to me solidified all the romantic reasons why I love cocktails um, and why cocktail, why I love the fact that cocktails allow us to connect with people better. Fantastic. And final question for you today. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? Ooh. Damn. That is, that is, that is the toughest question. It's, the stakes are so high. Um, save that one. That's why we saved that one for last. Yeah, I would say that 
even though this isn't a typical order of mine, um, my first instinct, and therefore I should listen to it, is a Manhattan. But the way Phil Ward used to make them for us back in the early days of Death & Co, before George T. Stagg was as famous and hard to get as it is now, nope. I, I'll take that back. Wasn't even George C. Stag that was delicious. But when Pappy 13 year was attainable <laughs> and when we could get bottles of it, the Pappy 13 two to one Manhattan with Carpano Antica um, is still lives in my memory as one of the most special, special sips I've ever had. Ah, that sounds like a good way to go. <laughs> yeah, that's the reason as well that it might not be your normal drink order because I'm guessing the last cocktail, if you knew that it was going to be your last You'd want to go for for something something big. That sounds amazing. Well, Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's been a pleasure hearing all about the bamboo. Let's go grab one together. Oh, I can't wait. Let, yes, please. Amazing. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Okay, that was a lot of info, but here's the good news. Every single episode of VinePair's Cocktail College is also published on vinepair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. Also, if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe, and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher, and please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded and produced in New York City by myself and Keith Beavers, VinePair's tastings director and all-round podcast guru. Of course, I want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team. Too many awesome people to mention, they know who they are. But I want to give some credit here to Danielle Grinberg, art director at VinePair, for designing the awesome show logo. And listen to that music, that's a Darby Seaside original. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time.